I think journaling's biggest power is that it forces you in a very physical way to cultivate self-awareness. And self-awareness is a part of every practice in this book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Barol. Today's guest on the show is Tara Schuster. Tara is an author, playwright, and an accomplished entertainment executive currently serving as the Vice President of Talent and Development at Comedy Central. She was the executive in charge of the Emmy-winning Key & Peele, the Emmy-winning At Midnight, and numerous other television shows. Tara's first book, which is called Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies and Other Rituals to Fix Your Life from Someone Who Has Been There, will be released next week on February 18th. The hilarious and relatable self-help slash memoir tells the story of Tara's path to reparenting herself and becoming what she calls a ninja of self-love. You can pre-order the book today by going over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite indie bookstore. You can also sign up for Tara's newsletter to receive weekly self-care tips at taraschuster.com forward slash subscribe. That's T-A-R-A-S-C-H-U-S-T-E-R.com forward slash subscribe. You can also find her on Instagram at Tara Schuster. In the episode, Tara and I discuss why Tara decided not to pursue a career as a New York playwright, how her budding playwright career pivoted eventually into an internship on The Daily Show with John Stewart, why John Stewart does not believe in big breaks, how cleaning the Daily Show office coffee machine opened doors to Comedy Central for Tara, why Tara strives to be the best at the worst. We talk about how she had rock bottom on her 25th birthday the first step that she took to build a sense of self-awareness, her advice for cultivating new friendships as you grow older, how Tara managed to be so honest in her memoir, and finally, how she faces the high risk of failure in the entertainment industry. Before I play the interview, my new book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, is now available for pre-order. I've been ecstatic about the early reviews of the book. Adam Grant recently listed the book as one of his top 20 picks of 2020. The book was also named a must-read by Susan Cain and endlessly fascinating by Daniel Pink. You can pre-order the book by heading over to rocketsciencebook.com. If you pre-order it, you'll also get digital access to the book to read on your favorite device within just seven days of your pre-order. That means you can start reading it months before the book is released to the public. You'll also get pre-order bonuses that are worth at least 10 times the cost of the book. Once again, you can find out all of that at rocketsciencebook.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tara Schuster, and thank you, as always, for listening. Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start with your background first. You graduated from Brown, and then you moved to New York to become a playwright. How did that eventually turn into a career as an accomplished entertainment executive? Well, I did not see that path happening. I had no intention of that being the path. I really did move to New York. I studied playwriting in college. I put up plays and I had my first show in the New York International Fringe. And I was like, okay, New York, playwriting time. 
But when I got to New York, one of my mentors at the time, who is a very prestigious, big deal playwright, took me to his house for tea and said, you know, I think you need to consider a career. And I was like, well, well, I just went into so much debt for my playwriting career. What do you mean? And he was like, you should look into real estate because you're not going to be able to make enough money being a playwright. And it was sort of like record scratch what? Like, and the more I looked around the New York theater scene, the more I saw that people were really struggling, really imminent, smart, fantastic playwrights were really scraping by. Add to that, I was doing like very avant-garde New York theater where it was, you're doing the same show for the same house of 99 people every night. So it felt a little small. And so a theater friend of mine had just been an intern at The Daily Show, and he suggested that I check that out. He thought that sort of the rigor of how The Daily Show was put together and the kind of family aspect of TV was similar to theater. And so I applied for and got that internship, and basically everything else sprung from that. I just fell in love. A TV set is a lot like a theater set. You're in one small contained space with fake walls and you've got exits and entrances and it felt really like home to me. So that's sort of how I made that little pivot and ended up even in the realm of TV. And when you say The Daily Show, this is The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, right? Yes, this was under Jon Stewart in 2009. And in your book, you recount a story of, and I'm not sure if this was during the one of the initial intern lunches that you had when you were an intern there, but you recount a story of another intern asking John Stewart about how John got his first break. Would you be able to share that story with the audience? Yes. Yeah, so basically, at The Daily Show, you wait until almost the end of the semester, and then you could have some FaceTime with John, who I do not know as John. He is very much John Stewart, no personal connection whatsoever. We got to sit down with him and we're each asking our questions about, you know, career advice. And one of my fellow interns asked, how did you get your first break? And John so quickly just cut in with, there are no first big breaks. There are only tiny little breaks. And he he basically explained that if you go through any career thinking like, well, if I only do this, then one day, you know, I'll make it, you're going to waste all of your time. And, And that each little opportunity presents all kinds of breaks. And that the key is you really have to work your best and your hardest at each one of those little opportunities. And he was talking about it in his, you know, stand-up career and failed TV shows that even though they failed before The Daily Show, that they put him in rooms with the right people. They gave him experience for the next experience that each one, no matter if it was a fail, you know, a quote-unquote failure or success, was a break for him. And that really landed quite hard on me that it that it isn't about these big career defining moments necessarily but instead if you can look at every all the all the small details and sort of enjoy them while you're there and suck everything you can out of them it probably makes for a longer and happier career 
That's such great advice. And not only that, but if you spend your time looking for that big break, right. uh, that like silver bullet, which doesn't exist, right. Right. You're, you're also, you're also going to be missing those like tiny little breaks <laughs> that are going to be critical to helping you move forward in your career too. You know, particularly in entertainment, people say things like, if I saw my pilot then, or if I, you know, star in the TV show, then I'm going to be so successful, blah, 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 blah. But if you spend your life on if thens, you're not even present for the step you're currently on. How could you ever do a really good job there? He was, I mean, he's one of my heroes. He's so smart and kind and, and just all of the things. And um, to hear someone at, at his level say that, something so humble, so authentic, it really stuck out to me. And can you think of an example from your own life where you apply that mantra where you were one after a tiny little break as opposed to a big one? In the book, I talk about the smallest, stupidest little break of all, which was cleaning the office coffee machine. I was an intern there. I had graduated college and I had to pay UCLA extension. I had to pay for UCLA extension credit in order to do the internship at The Daily Show. Like they needed you to get credit. So I was sort of like the reject too old intern. And, <laughs> and I, I never had any cool internships, by the way. Like I did none of those things. Like I, I always had to work during the summer or I had weird avant-garde New York theater internships. I had none of the requisite internships for the job I currently hold in case there's anybody who's listening who's like, oh, I didn't take the right steps. Like, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> or I hope it's okay. I hope it's all leading somewhere. Great. When I got to The Daily Show and I'm the reject intern, I noticed that the coffee machine was often broken or dirty or didn't work. And this was the coffee machine outside of the studio where John actually made his own coffee. So I just saw that as my first tiny break. You know, here was something I could control. I could do my best at. Hopefully someone would notice. And the producers of the show did notice. They noticed that I was really hardworking, competent, proactive, and they helped me get my first job at Comedy Central. And I genuinely use that same sort of model for every task I take on to this day, that it is its own little break, I should take it. And in the book, I think you call this, if I remember correctly, becoming the best at doing the worst. Yeah, be the best at the worst. Yeah, which I love. So that leads to a career at, at Comedy Central. Now you begin, if we can change gears a little bit, you begin your book by explaining how you found yourself at rock bottom at the age of 25. And you mentioned how you were leading this almost double life of being really good at your career, but quote unquote, bad at life. Can mm -hmm. you take us back to that rock bottom moment and share with us what happened? Oh, yeah. Let's go to the rock bottom <laughs> moment. I love it there. I had grown up in a very neglectful household and I had been using school and outside achievements as a way to validate myself, to give me status and say, I am important because I did not feel important and I didn't feel worthwhile. 
And I, you know, in the book, I recount um, waking up the morning after my 25th birthday with a series of alarming voicemails from my therapist. And my first thought was weird. You know, why is my therapist calling me on a Saturday? And it, it turned out I had drunk dialed her and I had threatened to hurt myself. And I had known prior to this that my life was out of control. I knew that I felt miserable. I knew that I hated myself. And I knew that I wasn't sure how I would find a way out of this. But it wasn't until my therapist took my threat seriously that I realized how bad things really were. It, it took her taking me seriously to take myself seriously. And, you know, so for me, that was the absolute rock bottom is what kind of person is so out of control that she drunk dials her therapist and can't even remember it. Like, who is that person followed, thank God, very quickly by, I cannot be that person. That is not how I want to lead my life. And for me, that next morning, I sort of you know, I, I had been really good at work. So always an A student, always did my homework, all, all those things that were for usually for outward validation. What they had given me was a structure for sort of how to accomplish things. So I was able to take that and say like, okay, well, if I needed to reparent myself, which is, you know, now it's a term that's being used more and more. But at the time, I don't even know how that term came to mind. But basically, I thought, okay, if I can create a Google document, I will come up with a curriculum, like here are all the things I need to learn, like what are values, what are principles, what are vegetables, <laughs> then I then I can attack each one of these subjects and write notes, and then I can teach myself these things. So I mean, it was like the most hacked together, like, how am I going to learn how to be an adult, but done in this weird student overachievery kind of way. And that was sort of what got me going was uh, having that, that rock bottom moment, but deciding, no, I gotta, I gotta find a way through this. How did you develop the self-awareness? The, the reason I'm asking this is the way you speak about going after achievements as validation or as, as status. I think it's a lot of, it's something that a lot of people do, but most people aren't willing to admit that that's why they're seeking achievement. And I put myself into this category too, for the vast majority of my life, I just sort of sought achievement without asking why I was doing it. It was very much related to my own ego. How did you cultivate that self-awareness and actually realize that that's why you were seeking achievement? Or at least partially. I mean, I have to check myself to this day about why am I doing this? Is it because I want other people to think that this is valuable and gives me status? Or is it because it's something I actually want to do and, and think would give the world some value? I think that it was the therapist. That I had somebody else to mirror back to me, okay, look, this is actually what you are doing. And when you have dried puke in your hair and alarming voicemails from your usually very calm, very placid, holding tea therapist, like a woman who was unflappable 
was flapped, if that's a term. Like that was sort of like a wake up moment that triggered whatever little self-awareness I had. And it was very little. It was like a little kernel and, and that sort of made it pop. So you started this Google Documents as a as a curriculum for <laughs> reparenting yourself. I assume this was the sort of starting point for what ended up being the book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies? Yeah, yeah. So I did not set out to write a book. That was never the goal plan or anything like that. I set out to save my life. And that curriculum grew and I worked on it for something like five years. And it was at that point, hundreds of pages and also included tens of notebooks where I was journaling. I was writing and building a self-awareness through that curriculum. And when I got to the other side and sort of felt like a stable human, which I, I, I cannot underscore how much I didn't think it was possible to be stable. I didn't think I could have a even keel amount of I am good, I am enough, I am any of those things. I didn't think it was possible. So when it was possible and when I actually felt that way and when, when I was like, oh, my God, how did this even happen? That was sort of when I realized I have a story to tell. I have something to share. I have something to offer because I knew it wasn't just me who needed some help in taking responsibility for their own life. And one of the practices you talk about in the book is is journaling. And there's a quote that I, I loved. You wrote, that which you do not deal with deals with you always. How does journaling help you deal with whatever is going on in your own life? And what does your own journaling practice look like? I grew up in a house where the past was the past and we were never going back to the past. And frankly, I saw what doing that did to my parents. They ignored what made them. They never dealt with it. So it always dealt with them. And it would come up throughout their lives in every scenario. And so for me, I think what journaling does is it, you know, it forces self-awareness to some extent. Even if you're lying to your journal, which many of us do, I sometimes do, lie like, oh, this guy's really great, even if I know my gut is mm, red flag. You have to deal with that lie because you wrote it down. Like you have to actually deal with yourself on physical paper. And if you're going to lie, you're going to need to take the action of writing it down as opposed to just random thoughts swirling in your head. So I think journaling's biggest power is that it forces you in a very physical way to cultivate self-awareness. And self-awareness is a part of every practice in this book. Until I reparented myself, honestly, I just didn't even think I was awake. It, it felt like my life was happening to me or that I was asleep. And it really wasn't until the journaling and, and cultivating that awareness that I was able to see, wait, I have some power in the story that is me in the story I choose to tell and the story I choose to lead. Yeah, what you say is so true. And and just going back to the earlier part of your answer too, I think I was operating under the very false assumption for the vast majority of my life that if an unpleasant feeling 
came up, the way to deal with that was to repress it, to just, you know, mm-hmm. sort of pretend that it's not there. Mm-hmm. Or worse, I would like work, you know, I just throw myself into some quote right. unquote productive activity to even ignore that it was there. And it was only after I started to journal that I was able to come face to face with my own demons. Although, you know, I've had a hard time, just like you mentioned, of actually sometimes being honest in my in my own journals. Yeah. Because when I first started journaling, I had this this idea that I was like writing for an audience, right? Even right. though like even though I'm the only one who has access to this journal, no one's snooping right. in my room and reading what I write. I was having, and it's still to this day, I have to check myself sometimes to make sure that I'm actually being honest with myself as opposed to writing some bullshit that's, you know, that's surfacing, but it's really not digging down to the reality of the, of the situation. So I'd love to hear you speak about like how you deal with that and what your own journaling practice looks like. Are there any prompts that you use to make sure you're keeping yourself honest First off, I'm just happy to know a fellow journaler. Thank you for sharing that with me. I I love knowing that. Yeah, I don't have any prompts, but basically, you know, the whole book is how I created this curriculum. And it was mostly by reading memoirs and self-help books and really diving in and researching how have other adults done it. And I read this book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I mean, that book kind of saved my life in a lot of ways. I mean, it was the first time that I ever had a tool to help me. And the tool in that book was the morning pages, which is you wake up and the first thing you do before coffee, before Instagram, before your kids, before, you know, you answer a million emails is you journal, you word vomit, whatever's top of mind for three pages, and then you're done. And and what I like about that practice is it is not in any way about the quality of what you write. It is not about the, you know, to get to what you're talking about, that idea of an audience or something needing to be good. That's not what the morning pages are about. There is no pressure for them to be eloquent or something anyone could read. Instead, it's really early, as, as early as you possibly can, getting to what you're thinking about. And what I'd say about when I lie, which sometimes happens, you know, as you know, in a journal, it is harder. I don't have, I don't yet have a tool for how do you stop yourself from lying. And actually, I don't think that'd be a great thing. I think the lie does tell you something. It it does tell you a truth. Like, wait, why can't you push harder on this? Why do you need this to be wrapped up in a bow? Why do you need this to be true? What I think is that in your commitment to journaling over time, you usually uncover weight. What I was saying before isn't really how I feel. And maybe here's why I've come to this place. But it's for me, it's the repetition that eventually gets me out of a convenient fabrication that I might <laughs> that I might make up. <laughs> One of the other things that I found helpful, uh, it just occurred to me as you were talking about and mentioning convenient fabrications is is reviewing what I wrote earlier in the year, having some distance on, like I did this as part of my, you know, we were in Mexico for about 10 days and I just took one of my journals with me and just read the entries from earlier in the year and reviewing what I wrote, having some distance on what I was writing, it's, it's, it becomes easier to see those convenient fabrications. It almost feels like a different person wrote it. 
And that gets right back at, you know, what I think is the power of journaling is that self-awareness practice that we can always refine and and grow is the self-awareness for one year in the future Ozon to be able to look back at one year in the past Ozon and say, hey, there's a disparity here. I think that's fantastic that, that you go back and look at that. I love that. One of the other practices you talk about in your book is finding your friend family or creating your own family out of friendships, what you colorfully call your lady harem. <laughs> um, for those who are wondering, and I think I've, I've seen this question now come up so many times that I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. People are more connected than ever in terms of being on digital social media platforms and whatnot, but that real life connection is is lacking for so many people in my own circle and, and me included too. I don't really feel... I'm connected to so many people, but I don't have that like core tribe of people that I used to have, say, in in college. How do you cultivate these friendships, your friend family in your 30s when it's just so much harder to make those deep lasting connections with other people? I think, you know, for me, in my particular circumstance, I didn't have a lot of family that I could confide in or trust. So the urgency to build the friend family was really there right? Like if I didn't cultivate it, I wasn't going to have it at all. Right. So there was a lot of room, you know, and I think that's, there was a lot of room and it was a huge priority. And I think, you know, I too have heard people kind of bemoan how hard it is to make friends in your thirties. And I think it's harder to complain about it and not prioritize it. Sure. Like if, if, if that's what one wants, then I think the thing to do is to look around at who is in your life. Do you, are these, are you adding value to their lives? Are they adding value to your own? And it's really painful, but sometimes the answer is no. Like I have outgrown this friendship. They have outgrown me. You know, sometimes the answer is not what we want it to be. But what I say in the book is, shed them now, shed immediately. Do not spend time with the people you shouldn't be with because this is it. This is all of the time. And if you don't go look for those people right this minute, then I don't know what else. I don't know how else to do it. I, and I think, you know, to the time part of it, well, how do you make time for it? If you open up time, there will be more time. But there are simple things. Like there are people even recently who I've been cultivating stronger relationships with who are at my gym. They work in the same industry. They all belong to the same gym. And I don't even want to be a member at that gym, except that I see them really frequently. So the frequency starts to be something like college, you know, where you just, I see them in the morning. So then it's like always easy to say, hello, oh, we should grab lunch. Okay, let's do that next week. So, you know, if there are things you can find like a gym, a class, a something where you are kind of forced to be in a community, I think that's one way you can fast track it. I love that. Or even like a meetup group. Yeah. And, and some people get embarrassed about this kind of thing, about like needing people. And that is so lame. <laughs> like if you are embarrassed <laughs> about needing people, then I don't even know what to say. We all need people. Everybody needs people. I think the most basic thing probably about all of us is we want to be seen and we want to see. And so what 
better way? What, what, what even could you be embarrassed about in being honest about wanting other people? And maybe that's actually what stops people from going to that meetup, going to that event where they know they'll see somebody they've been trying to become better friends with. Maybe that's what stops them is they think it's lame. But I think it's pretty lame to think the opposite of that. I think it's weird to stay isolated when what you want is to be around people. One of the things I I love about your book, uh, and after I read it, I sent you an image of the the cover with the subject, I fucking love your book. Um, (laughs) One of the things I love about it is how refreshingly honest it is. And I call it refreshingly honest because we're living in a world with such curated bullshit where there is that like incessant pressure to round off the edges and, and airbrush the negatives. How did you manage to be so open about such deeply personal subjects? I basically was just like, fuck that. I can't spend... There's a great Glennon Doyle quote that I that I always use, which is, um, she said, I can't spend any more of my life betraying myself. And I am just so fucking tired of people airbrushing what it is to be a person because it makes us all feel so lonely. So when I, you know, embarked on on the book, I mean, what great writer put a veneer like John Steinbeck wasn't like, you know, making it look fun and easy. Uh, Joan Didion certainly never gave us a puff piece. The, the writers that I respected the most, you know, get to the marrow of a thing and stay there. And I was really lucky, like, thank God, uh, that my editor had such a good eye for that. And whenever I was getting a little glossy, or it felt like you need to dig deeper, she would call me out and say, there's something here, go back. And, you know, I really welcomed her feedback also, because she was right there with me. You know, like, I, I trusted her to go to these places so I think it's a combination of things of the artists that I respected and and wanted to give an offering just the way they had given me an offering. I, I knew it had to be honest. And then I had someone in my corner who kept me honest, kept me, I hope, from what was me territory and, and really helped me find the line between oversharing and getting to the truth of something. It sounds uh, similar to what Adam Grant calls his challenge network, which is a sort of a team of people who keep him on his toes. And, and as the name sounds, it, they challenge him. And it sounds like your editor was performing their role. She was, but I have the sidebar of how is Adam Grant so fucking genius? And, <laughs> and like, why is everything? Well, I, even in my book, it's like full of Adam Grant wisdom. I think it's fucking annoying and not fair how good at life he is. <laughs> I love that. A challenge circle. Oh, I, I need to read more about that. I absolutely love that. And it's it's interesting. You mentioned to, to harken back to the very beginning of our conversation, but you mentioned your therapist providing this outside perspective and and helping you become more self-aware. And it, it sounds like your editor was performing a similar function when you were writing the book, which is such an important message because we're often too close to our own problems, right. whether our own problems in our lives or problems in our writing, 
to be able to see them clearly. It's like trying to psychoanalyze yourself. Very, very difficult to do. Which is why this outside perspective becomes so important. People who are going to not just challenge you, I think even people at Adam's Network, these are people who support him as well, but who are going to be honest with their feedback and, and not hold back when, you know, they think you're oversharing or not sharing right. enough because it's just, it's just really hard to do when you're, it's just you and that cursor and that blank documents. Staring you in the face. <laughs> exactly. To be able to zoom yeah. out and, and see what's missing in your blind spot. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought of this before, but one of the um, practices in my book that really helps me with this is I have a list of people I call my road warriors, Mm. and they're people who have been in similar career situations to my own or have careers that I think are, you know, admirable in one way or the other. And they're people I go to for feedback, for um, critique but never for encouragement. Like my, I have my hype men who I go to if I just need enthusiasm. If I just need enthusiasm, I'm going to Julia. She's one of my best friends from college. She's a cheerleader. She's got my back. But if I need somebody to really look at this thing, because some, you know what? Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need for a new fledgling idea. You just need someone to hold your hand and say, great idea. I'm with you. But when you need something more, I would go to someone like Adam Grant and say, and I have, and said, you know, here's what I'm thinking. What's your honest feedback on it? I love that he calls it a, a ch- is it a challenge circle? Challenge like, network, I think is what he calls network. it. Challenge network. I'm yep. writing it down. Yep. <laughs> and I've got one final question for you because we're, yeah. we've come to the end of our time here. And I wanted to ask this to you since you work in the entertainment industry and the the podcast is about failure. The entertainment industry is a graveyard of <laughs> failed projects. How do yes, you, it is. Uh, how, do you, how do you face the possibility that something that you're working on might not hit the mark? Oh, how do I not face that possibility <laughs> is really the question. Every single project is so fraught and difficult. The fact that any TV show is worth anything is a fucking miracle. Like, I don't even, there are so many places for something to go wrong. The way I face it is I'm, my base level is that everything is going to fail and that none of the pilots I make are going to go to series. I can get, you know, a little optimistic or hopeful or still be passionate about them, but I don't put a lot of, a stock in the performance, whether or not it makes it to air, whether or not the ratings are amazing, I have to do everything in my power to make the quality of the thing actually good. And if I judge myself on that, as opposed to how is it received, I'm usually in a happier state about things. And then one of my former bosses he had a way of just saying, you know, I'd be in his office kvetching about, oh, my God, my pilot didn't get picked up, my passion, I'm so sad. And he, and he would just go, next. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, the repetition of next, there's hope in next, you know, and, and artists have so many dreams and we all have so many projects within us that next is fine. Next means there's more. So... It's a combination of I am way more process, process and quality. Did I do a good job on the thing with a healthy dose of next? Those are the the two things that I 
I clutch to in the in the graveyard, as you so eloquently called it. Well, I think this is the perfect note <laughs> to wrap up this conversation on, Tara. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you and learn more about your book, where can they go? My website, tarashuster.com, has information about the book, about me, and it has my weekly newsletter where I send one self-care tip that is, I try to make it not so cheesy, you'll throw up in your mouth. Like it's a little cheesy, but not that cheesy. Also, I'm on Instagram a fair amount of my time, which I actually enjoy. I'm a lot of people hating on Instagram these days. I'm going to go ahead and and say I like it. So I'm Tara Schuster on Instagram. Awesome. And we'll put all of that in the show notes as well, along with... The link to buy a copy of Tara's book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.